Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, March 27th, 2018, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Mercury is retrograde now until the 15th of April, so it's not a good time to start new things, sign papers, or buy electronics. Take the time to reflect, and don't be surprised if computers act up. Well, our next Starseed Quest to Arkansas is for Pleiadian lineup on May 18th through the 21st. All you need to join us is at least one galactic star marking on your astrological chart at 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a soul group reunion in the crystal capital of the world designed to enable a catalyst for starseed empowerment to higher frequencies. We've redesigned this event to be much more affordable than the past previous gatherings. So if this sounds like what you've been looking for, just write soon to crystals at starseedhotline.com for more details because there are only five spots left for May. Tonight, we're presenting our featured episode of Lavendar's story, Crack Between the Worlds. It was originally aired a few months after we started this radio show in 2010, and because we've had many new listeners since then, we're presenting this spellbinding story again tonight. As you listen, remember that these events took place in the late 70s, when most of us were either still asleep or not even born yet. Lavendar was directed by the Pleiadians and George Van Tassel to hold this information until after Giant Rock cracked some 25 years later when the new children, born in the 80s, would be of age. Giant Rock did indeed crack as prophesied. It was also in the late 70s when Lavendar coined the term starseed, which is now used across the planet. Please do not listen to this story if you're driving, as many people have reported reactions from dizziness to nausea or being unable to stay awake or stay in the third dimension. It seems to place some starseeds in an altered state. So even if you've heard this story before, you'll hear something you missed the first time. And if this is your first time listening to us, you can learn more about starseeds, lightworkers, and walk-ins in our Vault of Knowledge on our site, which is starseedhotline.com forward slash vault dot htm if you want to get right to the vault. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream. We have an online starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other starseeds thanks to Tammy's helpful dedication. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk. And if you'd like to show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. 
for those who need healing of any kind, whether it's emotional, physical, or spiritual, for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. And if you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And please keep in mind that if you want a stage 2 interpretation of your solar return chart, you'll need to order it at least three months ahead of time because we do have a waiting list. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her ever-popular Starseed News. Hey, Anastasia. Well, hey, Ariel. Good evening. Hello. I'm so glad to have you back. And of course, we're glad to be back. Oh, yeah. Well, (laughs) good to get away and good to get back. And I'm glad to be back with you as well. We have a lot of news to cover. A lot's been going on while you've been away, so won't be able to catch up on all of it. But I'll just dig right in here. Um, Anybody out there heard of Schultz's Star? This was kind of new to me. Schultz's Star was named for its discoverer discoverer and it's now 20 light years away it's either a red or yellow dwarf i wasn't able to quite figure out what what it what it was but it's a red or yellow dwarf anyway it's a star it's big it's only 20 light years away and astronomers are now telling us that they verified a flyby of this star 70,000 years ago that disturbed that disturbed comets in the oort cloud Now, astronomers have announced this new evidence uh, just last week that the passage of Schultz's star 70,000 years ago gravitationally disturbed our solar system's comets and asteroids. And they say the evidence still exists in the movements of some of these objects marked by that stellar encounter. They were talking about orbital uh, evidence. Scientists say that, and I quote, close encounters could perturb comets in the Oort cloud, shaking them and sending them our way. They go on to say there's no need to worry, however. Even if the Oort cloud is perturbed, it takes millions of years for a comet in the Oort cloud to reach Earth. I didn't know that. Millions of years to get here. But the Schultz star seems to be something uh, somewhat significant to me for some reason. Anyway, that's a a very interesting event that's repeating itself hasn't been in many, many thousands of years. And uh, off the Virginia coast this morning, NASA provided live coverage of the Aspire 2 launch. Happened a little bit after 6 o'clock this morning. It was the second test of the Advanced Supersonic Parachute Inflation Research Experiment, acronym ASPIRE. And that is part of NASA's MARS 2020 mission. NASA has told us about the program, and I quote, landing on Mars is difficult and probably not always successful. Well-designed advanced testing helps. An ambitious NASA Mars rover mission set to launch in 2020, that's only two years away, guys, will rely on a special parachute to slow the spacecraft down as it enters the Martian atmosphere at over 12,000 miles per hour. So they tested that uh, parachute today, this morning, and as you get to thinking about it, you know it's really close to 2020. We're getting closer and closer to Mars landings, and uh, they're working on uh, what it takes to get that done right now, even as of today. And speaking of space, a Chinese space station, Tiangong-1, is going to crash down to the Earth next weekend. It's out of control. 
the European Space Agency has revised its prediction for when free-falling Tiangong-1 will crash into the Earth. They say the out-of-control Chinese space station will crash down around Easter weekend. Now, according to the European Space Agency's Space Debris Office in Germany, Debris from this satellite will splash down between March 30th and April 2nd across the northern hemisphere. And they say that although most of the 8.5-ton craft will disintegrate as it enters our atmosphere, some parts of debris weighing as much as 100 kilograms could strike the Earth. It's been on a collision course with our planet since China lost control of it two years ago in 2016. What goes up must come down, I guess, eventually. Mm. There it is. And uh, they have discovered something fascinating. A magma plume stretching all the way from Mexico has been found beneath Yellowstone supervolcano. They're calling this an underwater fountain of magma. Discovered beneath Yellowstone, heightening fears that a major eruption is on the way. Researchers discovered a column of hot volcanic ash known as the magma plume, beneath uh, uh, Yellowstone, and they believe it stretches all the way from Mexico. They say that this plume could be a source of the heat that drives so much of the volcano's surface activity, like its uh, hot springs, its bubbling springs. This news follows a spate of four mini-tremors in the area last week, while you were all at the quest, and that has recycled again the fears that uh, Yellowstone is becoming active. Now, where Yellowstone is concerned, there have been thousands of tremors over the past year. And in a recent tremor swarm, the deformed ground surrounding Yellowstone, uh, due to increased pressure and um, increasingly rare activity, was recorded from one of Yellowstone's geyser steamboat, which uh, with an uptick in activity that's very apparent. So it's active there. Now, they call uh, this magna plume uh, an unusual geological feature that lies at the boundary between the Earth's core and the mantle. It's really deep. And rises through the mantle into the crust. They say it's still just a theory. This abnormality would exist as a vertical stream of magma coming right from the center of the Earth. But this hot column may be enough to drive service activity at the park, scientists say, and again may explain a recent in- increase in the volcanic activity. The most recent quake came on March 11th when a 1.5 tremor shook the volcano just hours after a 1.8 quake was also detected in the region. A powerful uh, shallow earthquake struck Papua New Guinea again, a 6.6. It happened yesterday. The USGS said that it's the latest in the series to hit the the region in recent days. There have been no reports of casualties or damages. 6.6, pretty good-sized quake. Well, wow, I read about this. Orange snow in Europe. Have any of you ever seen orange snow? As I thought about it, I, I look back over my years, and you know I might have seen something like that. It seemed a bit familiar. But there is orange snow in Eastern Europe. Happened last week, and they're saying that it's normal. Meteorologists are telling us that sand and dust stirred up by desert storms in North Africa have caused snow in eastern Europe to turn orange. And the landscapes there that are covered with snow, they say, looks a bit like Mars right now. They took satellite images 
going on over that region, and it showed that the Saharan dust was being blown northwards across the Mediterranean Sea. This dust was lifted high into the atmosphere, carried by the wind, and pulled back down to the surface in the form of snow. It reached as far afield as Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, and Russia. And they say that this phenomenon occurs every five years. Orange-tinted snow, there's pictures of that on the Internet. They say it's caused by dust, sand Hmm. specifically. In, uh, Eastern Indonesia had a quake uh, just yesterday again, a 6.4, struck off the coast of Eastern Indonesia. They triggered a, uh, it triggered a brief tsunami alert, which was canceled rather quickly. The quake was pretty deep. It struck 106 miles below the surface of the Banda Sea. Well, I think a lot of us, some of us, maybe many of us, like to eat healthy and We have been assuming for years that salmon is good for us. Well, according to Mercola.com, they're saying, forget McDonald's, that farmed salmon is the new toxic junk food. It's amazing. You guys ought to check this out, Mercola.com. The article says that if you're aware of the health benefits of animal-based omega-3 fats and the fact that salmon is a great source, you might be shocked to discover that farmed salmon has more in common with junk food than health food. Among the experts featured in a documentary uh, on this, this uh, talks about a a documentary in the article, Uh, one of the experts that spoke up in this documentary claims that salmon farming is an unmitigated disaster, both from an environmental and human health perspective. Apparently, under the salmon farms dotted across the Norwegian fjords is a layer of waste some 49 feet deep, teeming with bacteria, drugs, and toxic pesticides, and since the farms are located in open water, the pollution is in no way contained. The article goes on to say that farmed salmon poses a more direct toxic threat threat to your health. Fish has always been considered a health food, but food testing reveals that today's farmed salmon is one of the most toxic foods in the world. Yikes. As noted by the producers of this documentary, quote, through intensive farming and global pollution, the flesh of the fish we eat has turned into a deadly chemical cocktail, end quote. So if you're out shopping for some fish, you might want to keep this in mind and go for the fresh-caught, wild-caught, although I will say, you all remember, we've talked about this uh, in past Starseed News episodes, that um, they have long approved now the a sale of genetically modified salmon in the marketplace. So who knows what we're getting when it comes to salmon. Keep that in mind as well. But if you want to read that article on salmon, it's uh, Mercola.com. Quite a long article, by the way. Well, do you all remember seven years ago when Cairo's Tahir Square was filled with tens of thousands of Egyptians demanding freedom and change? Mm-hmm. We haven't heard much about that in a long time. And I came across this article that tells us that Tahir Square now is plastered with portraits, enormous banners of the president. So it's about the person, not about the movement. We're told that almost all tra- traces of the popular revolt that overthrew the longtime autocrat Murabak in 2011, Mubarak, excuse me, in 2011, are now gone. 
There are banners and posters, dozens of them, showing an Adele Fattah al-Sisi. This is a general turned president who's running for re-election this week, whose vote is uh, election is widely dismissed as fake. According to Egyptians, they tell us that what happened in Tahir was the biggest threat to the network of corruption and theft throughout Egypt's modern history. Since the public square symbolizes the threat to tyranny, it is a reminder that people can awaken and ask for their rights, and that's why the regime insists on appropriating it to the memory now of dictators. Now, the election is going to begin yesterday, I guess, Monday, it said the voting was supposed to be staggered over three days, and uh, they say that most of the people in Egypt don't want to vote for this person, but they have no other choice. And so this was uh, kind of where it's at today, after all of that movement for freedom in Egypt um, seven years ago, just passing that along. There's only one person to vote for. Only one person. person. How is that an election? That's right. And, uh, you know, somebody quoted, they, right, exactly. Some uh, uh, local, didn't want to give his name, said, uh, normal people don't want this man to win. They would vote for any alternative, but there's no one. People with money, of course, want him to stay. He defends moneyed interests. That's why they're putting up all, paying to put up all these posters into here square. So, you know, it just... Uh, we're under siege in, in many ways all around the world um, for equality and for freedom. And I have to say that the idea that uh, capitalism can be unrestrained and that uh, unlimited growth is an objective that's attainable, is insa- it's insane, it's profane, as you're going to find out in a little bit as I continue to talk about the garbage patch, but we'll get back to that in a minute. Um, anyway... A little diversion there. I want to tell you about this law passed in Utah. And, you know, I just kind of, I couldn't believe it. You know, sometimes there's so much news to keep track of that we don't always know what's going on. I mean, we can't possibly know what's going on. And some things just slip through the cracks. And, and I wasn't really aware, or on a conscious level, that parents really can't let their children walk to school alone anymore. Or maybe go out and play in the yard alone. Or maybe walk down the street to a little store and buy them something or whatever. Apparently, there's been something going on in this country where children are never supposed to be without adult supervision. And the more I dug into it, the more I learned that many parents have been incarcerated, had their children taken away from them, uh, so on and so forth, for having left their children, for instance, alone in a backyard to play or allowed a child to go for a walk alone allowed a child to walk home from school alone. Well, I mean, when I was growing up, this was normal behavior. Children always ran around town and did their thing, and but not anymore. Well, Utah has now uh, legalized a controversial, which really caught my, I mean, this really made me very thoughtful. Uh, Utah has legalized a controversial child-rearing method known as free-range parenting. Children, I guess, are being compared to chickens. Uh, that encourages the fostering of self-sufficiency in children from a young age, which is believed to be the first legislation of its kind in the United States. The so-called Free Range Kids Bill 
was signed into law by the Republican governor of Utah on Friday after the State House and Senate voted unanimously to approve the legislation. This new law, which will take effect on May 8th, specifies that it is not a crime for parents to allow kids who display maturity and good judgment to do things like walk to school alone or play outside without supervision. Now, the bill does not define an age limit, and the sponsor said that it was left purposely open-ended so that police and prosecutors can work on a case-by-case basis if abuse or neglect is suspected. Uh, They say that if there are clear signs of abuse, of turning a child loose without uh, proper parenting uh, supervision in some way or form, uh, that might be grounds for action, but it's uh, not going to normally be the default. This bill aims to protect parents from prosecution uh, when they let their children do things alone. A Maryland couple made headlines in 2015 after they were accused of neglect for letting their two children, ages 10 and 6, walk home without adult supervision. And just four years ago, a Florida mother was arrested on a felony child neglect charge for allowing her seven-year-old son to walk to a nearby park alone. Now, the bill's chief sponsor said he introduced the legislation to encourage more self-reliance among children. He said, I feel strongly about the issue because we have become so over-the-top when protecting children that we are refusing to let them learn the lessons of self-reliance and problem-solving that they will need to be successful as adults. Now, Arkansas tried to pass a similar free-range kids bill last year but failed after receiving pushback from critics who said it was too dangerous to leave children unsupervised. Wow. That's, you know, that's one of those things I've gone to sleep on. I didn't really know that was uh, was an issue, but there it is. And a pushback towards normalization and uh, normal childhood, perhaps. Well, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is now three times the size of France. A new study, based on what researchers called a mega-expedition to the Great Pacific Garbage Patch three years ago, a new study that's come out of that expedition, suggests that there is about 16 times more waste than previously thought. The mass of waste spans 617,000 square miles, about three times the size of France. And this was just published a few days ago in uh, a Nature Journal scientific report. Well, The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is located about halfway between Hawaii and California. It's the largest accumulation zone for ocean plastics on Earth. The new analysis is the result of a three-year mapping survey by an international team of scientists. And again, there's about 90,000 tons that are currently floating in the water there. What's interesting is that they found that 92% of the mass was represented by larger objects like buckets and chairs and, you know, big pieces of plastic, maybe plastic pieces of boats, goodness knows what, big pieces of plastic, while only 8% of the mass is contained in microplastic, which rather surprised me because I assumed much of that was microplastic. Now, maybe the microplastic has sunk to the bottom of the ocean where the fish are eating it. It may have decayed to the point that it's not on the surface, In any event, 92% of this garbage heap, the size of France, is 
large, large bits of plastic. Now, meanwhile, the annual global consumption of plastic currently totals more than 320 million tons and is on the rise. The Ocean Cleanup is a nonprofit organization based in Delft, uh, Delft, Netherlands. The group consists of more than 70 engineers, researchers, scientists, and computer modelers. And it has a goal to develop advanced technologies to help eliminate plastics in the world's oceans. Wow. I don't know how you all feel about it, but I've just about decided that the only way we can help the Earth is to just stop buying stuff. I suppose some of you live in rural communities where maybe you are able to meet your own needs. Maybe you do things like make your own jam, can your own fruits and vegetables. I don't know. Um, For those of us that live in metropolitan areas, that's not feasible. But when we consider the amount of stuff that we bring in from the stores, wrapped in plastic, double wrapped in plastic, everything is in plastic, It appears, as I think about this, what can I do to help other than recycle, is uh, to just cut our consumption of stuff. It's a, it's a real, you know, all of this stuff is catching up with this, and that what I was, that's what I was saying earlier about the concept of unlimited growth, economic expansion. Whew, man, somebody needs to, we, as part of our future, we need to envision something very, very different. And I'm sure we are. Here's a wonderful story, and I'm going to end the news with this. A South Carolina man has a dog to thank for saving his life. Amazing. This man was on a lunch break with his friends when the group decided to briefly go out in a boat on the Okati River in South Carolina. But things took a dangerous turn when their boat capsized. This is just very recently, by the way one last few days. Well, one of the guys went to stand up to change his position in the boat, and the wind came, and the boat flipped over, and everybody got dumped into the water. Well, one man tried to get to the dock, but he was swimming against the current, and he said, I ripped off my shoes and my hoodie. I got about 75% across, but the water was so cold, I started to cramp up in my legs. This man's 24 years old, so he's fit. He said he was feeling like he wasn't going to make it, and just he just stopped swimming. He said, all I could do was roll over on my back, and I closed my eyes, and I said a prayer, and I asked for help. And then I heard the dog barking on the dock. The yellow Labrador, the barking dog, then jumped into the water, and the man was able to grab the animal's collar as the pup pulled him to shore. He had already been in the in the water for an hour. Floated in this cold water with numb legs for an hour. And the dog came along, jumped in, and pulled him to shore. The man said, when I saw the dog coming in the water, I was doubtful. I was worried that I was going to drown the dog while he was trying to save me. But he said, amazing, it was almost effortless for this dog to pull me into the dock. Now, this heroic dog belongs to the owner of the property where the man had been working. He said he couldn't be more grateful that the animal rescued him. And then the man said, I went home and I kissed my children. I was overwhelmed with joy. I saw the dog the next day, and he recognized me. He stayed close to me for the rest of the day, the dog. 
he worked at that property where he'd fallen into the water, and that's where the dog lives. So when he went back to work, the dog stayed with him the whole day. Wow, is that... Boy, the beauty angels of with these, fur. Uh, angels, angels with, with fur. Yes, uh. yes, yes. And, you know, when we pay attention, we look into their eyes, we touch them, we feel their energy. It's an awesome experience. These beings are so sentient and wise and good and so <laughs> so loving, so beautiful. But we've all heard that dog is God spelled backwards, but <laughs> I... I I, I just think that's perfect. I mean, anyway, that's a beautiful story. I'm, I'm amazed that a, a Labrador could pull a man. I, I'm sure, I mean, 24 years old, he's probably, you know, got some weight on him. I mean, he's a man. He's going to be kind of heavy. The dog just effortlessly pulled him to shore. Well, we don't know, but what the dog had a little bit of spiritual boost, right, to do that. But I just think that's amazing. What a story. It is. Um, we know Labradors were... Labradors were bred to do that, to jump into the cold sea and bring in the fishing nets and drag them, across, you know. So. I didn't know that, Ariel. I confess my yeah. ignorance. That's amazing. Well, I have I have two Labradors. You do. So. You do. You do yeah. have a, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yeah. Well, one yellow, one something. black. Isn't that something? Yeah. I love that. But that's a special dog because I know that my lab would not do that. <laughs> well, my, yeah. my. I mean, but, I don't know. I don't know if she would or not. Of course, she's thirteen. But um, right. Well, this yeah, is a young dog. That, that's young just dog. They're the best dogs. I love. I love my dogs. So. Well, that's just awesome. That just speaks of their Touching. intelligence and their compassion and attachment and all the good stuff that that we are in our hearts. Oh, all yeah. those beautiful things within us, the animals and body. Okay. Well, that's going to be it for tonight. But I am looking forward to having everybody back and to see you again next week. From my heart to yours, much love, each and every one of you, and I'll see you next week. Okay, Anastasia, thank you so much for the Starseed News. I'm going to be thinking about that story for a long time. It's very touching. So um, we have a a feature um, of Lavendar's story this evening. And just before I get that started, because I've been meaning to talk about this after the news, um, for a few weeks now, because I just started watching, and you probably all already know about this, but I just caught um, a TV show called Blue Planet 2, where they explore the depths of the waters. And some of the information and the facts that, like, I had no idea, no idea that the, the oceans and the planktons generate as much oxygen or more than the than the Brazilian rainforest. But it's on BBC America and if you get a chance to you know go back and catch it from the beginning, um there've been several episodes already this season, but it is another world. It is life not as we know it that lives under the ocean and has for eons of time. But it's just a riveting show, so um recommending it. Take a look at Blue Planet 2 on BBC America. So this um, recording that you're about to hear is Lavendar's story, Crack Between the Worlds. And we originally aired this when we first started the show in 2010. And uh, we have a lot of new listeners now, so we're going to hear it again, and I certainly hope that 
um, you enjoy it. And remember, if you're driving in your car or listening to this after the fact, um, make sure you're you're safe and secure because a lot of people have reported some weird sensations, dizziness, etc. And that's not something that you want while you're driving a car. So um, with that um, preemptive statement, here is Crack Between the Worlds. Crack Between the Worlds, read by Lavendar. This is a document that has been in the making for a very long time. Most of this information has been kept in a bank vault for over 30 years. I've decided to release this story at this time because now is the time. On March 4, 2000, I discovered on the Sightings.com webpage a story about an event that shook my soul to its foundation. Giant Rock, a huge boulder sitting in the area of Landers, California, had suddenly split open, exposing a gleaming white granite interior. Giant Rock had long been a sacred site for UFO researchers, along with Native American lore. The description of the splitting of the rock is presented in an article by James Twyman, author of Emissary of Light and Secret of the Beloved Disciple. His website, www.jamestwyman.com, and the news article can be found from the High Desert Star newspaper dated Wednesday, February 23, 2000. So why did the news of the splitting of Giant Rock have such an effect on me? Because I've been holding a series of stories for several years concerning light information from ETs that are influencing our planet. Somehow, I have been given the insight to journal some events that started to take place at Giant Rock starting back in 1976. These events were witnessed by several people. Some are living while others have crossed over. As I looked at the before and after pictures of Giant Rock, well, the before picture I knew so well, the, the after picture was so startling, it was a shock to my system. I knew that it was a signal to me. Seeing the cracked rock created in my being a release of light information that I'd been holding for over 25 years. It seemed that every file in my brain's computer wanted to download, and I kept saying, oh, not now. It isn't time. I just can't do this now. I instantly knew that I had to put up my visible hands to my head as though I could stop this. I kept chanting, no, 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 as though I, I had any power over memories of this magnitude. It was at that moment that I felt an outside presence enter the room, and a calming came over me. This presence was not visible, and yet I was aware that it was there. The struggle with the filing system in my head seemed to be closed off. All at once, I knew that within 24 hours, I'd be released to write this story. Sacred time and space would be provided for me. I would simply sit down properly and release through the keyboard of my computer what I could remember or what I'd be allowed to remember. For days now, it had seemed that information about Giant Rock was about to surface. 
The day that the rot actually split was on a Monday, February 21st, 2000. My mother had a statement to me that certainly got my attention. At the time of this writing, my mother was 85 years old and was in a wheelchair. I had taken some of her artwork out and noticed that she had about 18 canvases that were unfinished and not signed. I asked her if she'd signed the pictures as I felt that her signature should be on them. She replied that she would not sign a picture until it was finished. I promised her that if I would take art lessons and learn some of her techniques that perhaps I could finish some of her paintings. She agreed and proceeded to tell me about each picture and what needed to be done to finish it. When I came to a painting that was of the sand dunes and mysterious blue and pink sky, I blurted out, Oh, this can be a picture of me at Giant Rock with George Van Tassel. My mother squinted her eyes with that little leprechaun look and said, Yes, and you haven't finished doing what you said you were going to do. And I said, Well, I think I've done about 25%. And she said, <laughs> when are you going to do the rest of the story? And I said, I don't know. Now, the thing that amazed me about her statement was that I couldn't remember telling her anything about my promise to George Van Tassel. I looked at the painting of the sand dunes, and I could see, just as though it were yesterday, George walking toward the dunes and me walking back to the house where he lived. I also remembered that it was the last time that we had a three-hour one-to-one talk. In fact, I can now say with certainty that it was the last time I saw the true essence of George Van Tassel, period. The vision of me walking towards the house and not looking back seemed to freeze-frame in my brain, and all at once I said, Mother, I know what I will paint, a man walking in one direction and a woman walking towards us. And she said, you never will. I mean, never learn to draw people and paint them. And with that, she just totally dismissed the painting. And a mother-daughter shutdown had occurred. And, well, you know the kind of electromagnetic psychic pulses that happen with certain genie bloodlines. And my mother was a genie. And she was certainly out of her bottle. I put the canvas down on the floor. And as I placed it, a series of pictures started flashing in my head. They were of the day that George took me for a walk and gave me information about ETs, walk-ins, mind control, ET government experiments, advanced technology, and spiritual insight. He clearly defined his ET source and from his perspective clues of their experiments. He turned to me and his, and his gentle voice said, one day you will need to release this light information to the world and you will know the right time because the signal will come when giant rock cracks. This will signify a communication line that represents the crack between the worlds. When this happens, then that will be your signal to release your light information, but with a lot of discernment. I asked him what he meant by when giant rock cracks and he went into great explanation about this information concerning the crack between the worlds and said that a demonstration and in unison with other dimensions would be lightning from the sky and the boulder would just simply crack open. He said it wouldn't happen for a long time and that I shouldn't concern myself with it now 
but that I was only to remember it when giant rock would crack. He said that I would write it down and pass it on to the next seven generations of people to come. And I asked him, Why so long a time? And he said, The light information that I am going to give to you will not be understood by many until then. But there will be those that will relate to this, and it is for them that you must pass this light information on. As we walked through the sand dunes, he related information about time travel, rejuvenation, ET technologies, walk-ins, and dimensional interconnectedness that occurred with certain codings and timings. He was able to transfer this light information in three hours, but it would take me 25 years to live it, decode it, and then translate it into story form. At that time, I was 33 years old and just starting on my spiritual journey into something I have referred to as Beyond Z. Through these years, I've come to know and understand some of the information that George gave me that day. Some I have already written about, while other aspects have been experienced but not yet journaled. Now that the rock has cracked open, it seems to signal to me that perhaps it is time to release the information about the stories of Giant Rock, George and Doris Van Tassel, and the visitations of the ETs. I could hear him saying this as clearly as though it were yesterday. And I said to myself, oh, not now. This isn't the time as I push the memories away. As part of this coordinated coincidence, a few days later, I received a phone call from Ariel telling me that she had been in contact with a man who had been to Giant Rock and had had many visits with Doris Van Tassel, George's second wife. I thought this seemed odd, especially after my recent experience with my mother in the sand dunes painting. As Ariel's talked, I started flashing again on a series of events that had taken place at Giant Rock. Once again I said, not now, this isn't the time, as I continued to push even further back my memories, as they were coming through a place that I call the crack between the worlds. It was all that I could do just to listen to her explaining her relationship with her new friend. I was experiencing a series of flashing pictures and trying to listen to her at the same time. Pretty soon... I had to turn my screen off and just go blank. Sometimes this is the only way that I can hold my sanity together. I was on automatic pilot now and knew it. I also knew that something was approaching from the crack between the worlds, and the next time I didn't know if I could stop the visions with a simple blank screen. Through the years I had learned the cadence and the deliverance system from the other where and it seems as though they use it in a one, two, three punch system just before they knock me out with sacred data or before they release me to download information. I have never been able to discern whether it is incoming or outgoing or both being dyslexic. I guess it doesn't matter. Before I talk about my walk with George and the sand dunes, I should mention what happened to me on February 7, 1977. It all started with my romantic fling with a young man from Alaska who owned a helicopter company. I was truly smitten, and his physical sexual prowess kept my head spinning. 
On New Year's Eve, we were drinking Jack Daniels and really partying on the Strip in Las Vegas. At the moment of midnight, he took me in his helicopter and we buzzed the Strip and flew back to the airport. How we escaped the police and death is beyond me. He went home with me that night and moved into my apartment. The next day, I discovered that my favorite wristwatch with tiny diamonds was missing. My father had given me this wristwatch for my high school graduation, and it was very special to me. I retraced my steps and toured Ever Casino, but to no avail. I was simply devastated and felt a part of me was truly missing. We spent all of January in romantic bliss until one night while dancing at the Mount Charleston Lodge, I became overwhelmed with a strong feeling that he was going to leave me for my best friend Diana. It was so strong that I fled the dance floor and immediately went home. He tried to convince me that this would never happen, that he truly detested Diana. The next day I tried to shake this vision, but I couldn't. He brought me flowers, we had a romantic dinner, then went downtown to see a movie. When we got home, I had such a foreboding that I sat down with a bottle of Jack Daniels and drank most of it. When I went into the bedroom, I heard a voice tell me to look at him sleeping and remember it, for it would be the last time he would spend the night there. I was drunk and thought I was hearing things, but I did remember it. The next morning, the voice started speaking inside my head again, saying things like, Watch him get dressed. Watch him eat breakfast. Now watch him walk out the door, for he will not be back. You will not ever see him again. I heard this, but didn't want to believe it. Sure enough, that night Diana called me to tell me he was over at her house. They stayed in bed for two weeks and got married. He never came back for his clothes, and I never saw him again. He vanished out of my life. I was out of my mind with grief. I canceled all my appointments and wouldn't leave my apartment until I received a telephone call from Doris Van Tassel from Giant Rock. She asked me if I would come immediately to see her. She said it was urgent. I had a girlfriend named Sally that had her own airplane, so she flew me down there. There was a landing strip at Giant Rock, as it was used to be. It used to be an airport. When I got out of the plane, there were stores, thin, petite, white pixie hair with arms waiting to greet me. As she hugged me, I felt a sense of release from my heartbreak, almost like it fading from my mind. She grabbed Sally, and said, "Lavender needs to be alone so that she can sit inside the room." below Giant Rock by herself. She needs some clarity. And with that, they drove off to the house, which was about a mile away. I was stunned, and yet I obeyed and went down the stairs to the room under the rock. This room had only one door in or out. I was there several minutes. When I started to climb the stairs to leave, I heard a voice behind me. When I turned around, there was a dark-haired man who had well, he was bald on top. He looked like he'd put on a really bad hairpiece because, well, the hairpiece didn't look real and there was this, this bald spot. It was just confusing. I noticed that his skin had no pores and he looked bronze like someone had just chiseled him out of a statue. His face was quite handsome 
He reminded me of a cross between actors John Saxon and John Gavin. He was taller than me, and yet I felt the same size when in his presence. His eyes, what can I say, did make any sense. They were gold and blue and green and black, then a rainbow of colors that aren't even in our spectrum. How do I describe a color with no reference point? Startled, I said, well, who are you and what do you want of me? And the next thing that happened was so freaky that it blanked my mind where I couldn't hear any words come from him. All I remember was that he motioned for me to open my hand, and when I did, I looked down, and in my hand there was my lost wristwatch. As he closed my hand and held it, he filled me with so much light that my five senses went into a blur. I couldn't see, hear, or smell. I was just totally overwhelmed. I couldn't even tell if I shut my eyes or not. The only thing I could remember after that was that he telepathically told me that I would not be able to convey to anyone about this transfer of light information until I had experienced it by living it. He told me, you are the demonstration and experiment of light information, and because of this, many adventures will be forthcoming, and you are to journal them, hold them in sacred space, until such a time as light information demonstrations will be embraced by those of like mind. If you try to tell anyone of this before the time, they will be erased of this knowledge and not be able to keep it nor ever tell anyone about it. You will be alone with this, and there will be those of us that will come throughout your life to present different levels of light information that opens doors of other realities, dimensions, and direct contact with those of us of extraterrestrial heritage, not of Earth. You will be loaned out to different species for short durations in order to journal their evolutionary contributions to Earth. During this time, you will be closely monitored through your double pineal and by crystal implants that we will give you. Through this series of adventure, you will go beyond the limb. This will be a turning point. And then terms of endearment. You will remember these phrases as they will become codes that will be released some of your adventures. These were the names of movies of an actress that I would empower later. Then he placed his hands on my head and I saw pictures of different vistas of trees and limbs and the environmental structure. Around these trees were images of people who looked like me. Dark hair, blue eyes. I saw movie stars. First was Natalie Wood. Then Elizabeth Taylor. In the distance were Joan Collins, Barbara Parkins, Susan St. James, Susan Plachette, Elizabeth Ashley, and then the authors Jacqueline Suzanne and Anne Wren. Then off to one side I saw male figures that were famous, Burt Reynolds, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, and Dennis Weaver, all of whom I met and had interaction with, some more than others. I don't have any memory of seeing Shirley MacLaine. After all the time we spent together and the joint experiments that were conducted by ETs, one would think that she might have been predominant in the pictures, but she wasn't. The only reasonable explanation for this is that, that ever made sense was that Natalie Wood held a certain kind of evolutionary code to be played out, but she was taken out before she could finish it. 
Shirley was next in line to continue a certain kind of spiritual awakening for humanity. In my chapter on Shirley, this is explained in detail. Then I saw Ronald Reagan, Anwar Sadat, Gorbachev, Jerry Brown, Donald Trump, and then a stream of faces I could not identify which some of them showed up in my life in the next 25 years. Then I seemed to be going back in time, and I saw all the Founding Fathers of America, and I knew them by name. Then the scene changed, and I saw a map where the names Athens, Greece, Cairo, Egypt, Israel, Aruba, Yucatan, Hawaii, Sedona, Flagstaff, Santa Fe, Rio Doso, Washington, D.C., and two faces I didn't know at the time. I saw me on several occasions at the White House surrounded by people that I would come to know later. Congressional and Senate members and presidential hopefuls became a collage of characters parading through my life. It became obvious to me that ETs were intertwined in the political arena. And it became really obvious to me recently with Egypt. Then I saw a group of fast-moving slides on the globe. Then a map of 33 places around the globe. He took his finger and pointed to every one of them, and then he would press on my forehead after each touch of the map. He said that I was to refer to these as the 33 GM PowerPoints of Crystal Grid System Activation. It would be from here that evolutionary planning would take place and would be monitored throughout the ages, as it has been designed that way from the beginning of the planet's history. I witnessed the activation of crystal ley lines and grid points by crystalline ET computers that were buried under the ground. A lot of guardians were also at these sites, and the indigenous tribes at each location found a bloodline that was worthy of stewardship. This was usually passed down through seven generations and interlocking with other ET bloodline experiments that would sometimes be interchanged with 14 generation experiments. So much of this information is still surfacing from my memory banks and is released a little at a time depending on who needs to know it kind of thing. Pictures were flashing so fast that I could remember only a small percentage of the information. I was shown how astrology and astronomy work together in a galactic system based on the 12 time zone system with certain degrees indicating specific galactic codes used by different species. It was through these pictures that the discovery of star markings was introduced to my filing system but wouldn't surface for many years. Bloodlines were a big part of this information as I saw an entire genetic system that is tracked by ETs through blood plus planetary timing based on certain planetary equations. It would be from here that he said that I could excel in matters of galactic proportions because this would reveal how ET species help to evolve a planet both negatively and positively. After this series of movies, then he imparted a brief statement that I didn't understand for many, many years to come. He silently imparted the phrase, You are and have always been the light information. Come now, come later, but you're coming with the adventures suited for a scribe. You must live this first. 
We will be on the standby every day of your counting. Remember, you belong to no man. You belong to us. You belong to no man. You belong to us. Then he embraced me, had me breathe with him, and seemed to walk straight through me, and then just vanished. I looked down at my wristwatch, and it was running backwards, and that is when I totally collapsed. When I woke up, I was resting on the stairs. I felt like I must be having a nervous breakdown. I thought, I have to give up drinking Jack Daniels. It's causing my mind to go crazy. Then I realized that Doris had called me down to Giant Rock just for this experience. How else could I explain the wristwatch in my hand, which had now started running forward, but was off by two hours? Over the years, I've tried to play this out in my mind and attempt to remember the rest of what he showed me. I, I have only been able to put bits and pieces of it together, however, as my life would take different turns. I would see his face and somehow knew that he had foreseen or maybe even directed each adventure. Doris came to get me and take me back to the house for body treatment and dinner. Then Sally and I flew back to Las Vegas in her twin cub airplane. I was changed somehow, for the ache in my heart was gone, and I could no longer remember his name, the one I was so devastated over earlier. This would be the first of many romantic erasures to come in my life and then be erased out of my life. Whenever I would venture off my soul mission with a man, then the man would be erased. I mean erased. I had no memory of what he looked or felt like, only a shadow memory that he'd been part of my life. It takes a certain kind of male energy to even be in my presence, let alone my everyday life. Not many can handle the galactic pressures that accompany my experiment on the planet. I used to explain this away because later in life I was struck three times by lightning, and I attributed it to that, but after the giant rock experience I knew that ET technology was at work and somehow it kept my little feet on the path of my future galactic experiences. So here's the story about my walk with George Van Tassel at the sand dunes around Giant Rock. This particular event happened about a month before George passed away. George and his wife Doris had called me to come visit them on this particular weekend. They had invited a select group of people to come and view some important documents that had been put in their care, and these documents were called the Wadi Scrolls. These were scrolls that were found in the Qumran Caves, close to where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. A man named Wadi had found them and had taken them to Stanford University, where they had been scrutinized and authenticated for seven years. The Van Tassels felt that they wanted witnesses for the reading of this material, and they asked me, Harvey Brevere, a healer, and a Jewish couple, uh, I can only remember his name, Reuben, I can't pull their names right now, okay, to bear witness to the reading of these scrolls. They had also expressed to us that they felt that our abilities to track and discern would help them in deciding the fate of these important documents. A man named Leo had recently had a stroke and had given these scrolls to George because he felt that he wouldn't live much longer. George, in turn, entrusted this information to the four of us. 
we took turns reading this material, which had been carbon dated as being written during the time of Jesus the Christ. There were letters from Claudius, Pontius Pilate, and Nicodemus, both Marys and several other biblical characters. This translation from Essenes to English was written by several professors at Stanford University. We started reading the scrolls in the afternoon and we read late into the night. Each of us took turns reading out loud. We take breaks to discuss what we had read, but mostly we'd end up crying because of the depth of the material. The emotions this brought up in us was overwhelming. The Jewish couple gave their viewpoint based on their religion. We needed to see through their eyes on how their ancestors would view this particular point of history. By 2 a.m., I suggested that we stop reading and try to get some sleep. What a joke! We all went to our bedrooms, but who could sleep? We had just read material that could change the course of religious history. What would happen if this material were released and if people were allowed to believe it? We were too stun-gunned to sleep. All of us lay looking at the ceiling for hours. Around 4 a.m., a bright blue light flooded all of our rooms as though we needed anything else to deal with. We were frozen in time for about two hours. In truth, we probably experienced some missing time. At about 6 a.m., when I could move my body, I decided we all needed some breakfast. I went into overdrive and cooked bacon and sausage and eggs and pancakes and biscuits and potatoes and corn on the cob and plenty of coffee. This was the outlet that I needed at the moment to cook my full head off. Around 7.30 a.m. we gathered again to eat this feast prepared from the twilight zone and start discussing what we had read the day and the night before. Just as we were finishing breakfast, there was a knock on the door. There was a woman with a man in the wheelchair. It was Leo, the man that had given George the Wadi Scrolls. He said that he had been awakened in the middle of the night and was told by a voice to get up, get dressed, and drive to Giant Rock to see George immediately because something of importance was happening. He said the voice was so persuasive that he actually was without pain when he went to dress and was free of it as he spoke. I remembered Harvey Bevere kneeling down to speak to Leo and after a few moments noticed that they both were in tears discussing the Wadi Scrolls. It was a very touching moment and one that I am not going to forget for a very long time. We all sat around the round table and started reading the scrolls out loud again except Leo who only listened as the stroke had taken his speech. We had done about an hour of reading when there was a knock on the door, and I got up and answered, and there, standing tall, was a young Australian man speaking with an Aussie accent. Hi, my name is Donovan Joyce, and I have written a book called The Jesus Scrolls. I know this must seem odd, but I was told by my guides to get on an airplane and fly from Australia to L.A., then rent a car and drive to the desert past Palm Springs to a place called Giant Rock. And once I got here, I'd know what to do. I glanced down by the door, and on a table was a copy of his book, The Jesus Scrolls by Donovan Joyce. 
Someone had sent it to Doris just a few days earlier, and she hadn't had time to even pick it up, much less read it. With not a skip of a beat, I immediately invited him in and introduced him to the group, and of course we had another round of tears. It was starting to be apparent that the force was at work and that two individuals had been instructed by voice to come to where we were sitting, sitting in a double-wide house trailer, reading from A, manuscript given by Leo, who now had joined us, and B, another author with some various similar information, being driven by voice to come to the desert by way of Australia? What? Does this sound like the Twilight Zone? Yes, because it was. It's a perfect demonstration of when information flows from the crack between the worlds. We finished reading the final chapter around 2 p.m. It was at that point that George closed the manuscript, looked deep within our eyes, and said the following. Lavendar, Harvey Bevere, he named the Jewish couple. I called you here because I trust you, not only do I trust you, but also I trust your soul and your records. And I want you to tell me the truth about what I should do with this manuscript. Don't hold anything back. Just tell me how it is. And he turned to me and he said, Well, Miss Bowen Arrow, let me hear it from you first. Well, at first I was shocked that he called on me, but then I settled into the fact, and without hesitation I just blurted out, George, if you try to publish this now, they'll just kill you. The Catholic Church alone will have hit men ready to take you out. And anyone that threatens their hold on power, well, in influence of the Church, well, this isn't just the Catholic Church, not to mention the Baptist and Methodist and Church of Christ, and just think about all the other religions, what they're going to do. All of Christianity is based on the fact that Jesus died for their sins. And there's great guilt over this, and it's used by every religion in order to control the people. The release of this manuscript would jeopardize too many people and too much power. My vote is to put it away in a vault under strict instructions not to be released until the world can handle, through consciousness, such a statement of fact. I spoke with a clarity that even surprised me, although when I think about it now some years later it was and is very clear why this manuscript or even other manuscripts like it would either be destroyed or kept under lock and key and away from the masses. Now can you imagine how I must have felt being raised a Baptist reading this manuscript? This went against everything that I ever had been taught about the Bible or religion. Although I was studying astrology and was practicing the art of being a mystic, I still had certain beliefs that would want to stay in place. The reading of this manuscript changed all of that, and I have never been the same since I read the material. George went around the table and heard from everyone what they also thought, and it was decided by the group that this material would be put in a vault. Later, it was established that when George and Doris died that the material would go to me, and that would be responsible for its safekeeping during my lifetime. This decision would change the course of my life because the magnitude of the responsibility would require that I probably wouldn't marry and have earth children because I could not put them in such a position. 
their lives would never be safe. Every relationship that I would have would go through such a scrutiny. This is what I have learned through these years of silence. When one takes a cosmic oath of this magnitude, then a safeguard system is set up through a system called the Keeper of the Keys. Several keys are to be given, but only one is designed to be the one to release the information at the appointed time. That time would be determined by those aboard the Star of Bethlehem and by 33 species of galactic intent. Computer readouts would determine this, and those readouts would take place through implants of the people and the planet. It was a gigantic screening procedure through certain readout days. Mostly these days would be called Pleiadian lineup, which would match November 17, 1819, or May 17, 1819 of any given year. However, because of escalation of technology and war on the planet, there has been additional days of monitoring, and these may start as soon as November 15th or May 15th, and last as long as several days after the 19th date. On the Pleiades, this is called the celebration of planet Earth, because we are their children, and they want to know how we're evolving. Think of it as their Super Bowl, with everyone around a TV set watching while partaking of their favorite beverage. This has been a tradition for thousands of years, especially since the destruction of Atlantis. The seeding, the watering, the fertilizing, and harvesting of a planet and its people have been ongoing from planet to planet through these evolutionary measures for eons of time. So sometime in late afternoon, George asked me if I would take a walk with him. He said that there were some things that he needed to discuss with me in private. I agreed and put on my walking shoes and hat, and we began to climb over the sand dunes on our way to Giant Rock. In about ten minutes, when we were out of view of the house, George started speaking to me in a very strange voice. I had never heard this voice before but it was one that I knew spoke with great authority, so I listened very intently. He told me that he and other beings, and ETs and spirit wall beings, had been watching me for years and had been part of a team to prepare me for some extensive work that would be forthcoming in the next 25 years. He said that I had been part of an ET experiment from the moment of my birth and that I was coated in my blood cells. He knew that I was born with a double pineal, and that I had been part of a hybrid experiment, and that I'd be exposed to other world realities so that I could journal them. He said I was coded in my blood, and that these codes would be released upon certain timings, and that I'd be monitored day and night for the rest of my life on planet Earth. He explained to me about ET technology and implants, but more than that, he explained about time travel and what that would mean in the future when people understood the reality of going forward and backwards in time. Another topic was walk-ins and how that particular experiment was allowed with humans and the beings that be in charge of such soul interchange. Remember, this was in 1977, 
No one had even mentioned walk-ins at that point, not even Ruth Montgomery or anyone. This was brand new information, and it was really hard for me to hear. When he would see that I was having difficulty absorbing this information, he would take his hands and put them over my eyes as though he were coating me with his hands. Then he would look at me in the eyes and stare for long periods to see whether it took or not. This went on for some time with each subject matter that he would tell me about. When he saw that I couldn't handle any more information, then we'd just walk in silence until I would speak. I asked a lot of questions and received more than enough answers. This went on for about three hours. When it came time for closure, he instructed me to take his hands, look into his eyes, and with a jolt that I will never forget, charge me up with so much light that I thought I was going to explode. He told me to go back to the house and wait for him and that he needed to be alone. He turned and walked toward Giant Rock, and I practically floated back to the house. When I returned, everyone was still talking about the manuscript, but I was totally focused on the information that had just been given to me. I could tell that I had to sit alone with this, so I excused myself and went to the bedroom to rest. Several hours passed, and Doris came in and asked, Where was George? I told her that he said that he needed to be alone. She informed me that it was now 10 p.m. and that I had been back since dusk. I must have looked bewildered as though time had escaped me somehow. Everyone seemed to start being anxious about George, and a search party was convened to go out and find him. They looked for two hours, but no George. Finally, when everyone was exhausted from looking, a very peaceful George just walked up to the house and came in the door. A curious thing happened after that. He turned and winked at me and did the following. He went around and touched everyone and talked with them, and in seconds their entire perception of his absence was erased. I was the only one who was allowed to see this. This was part of my training, and I knew it. Another thing finally came over me. The George that left with me was not the George that came back. In other words, the procedures of walk-ins and how they happen, and now he was one. It was the final demonstration. This was a secret that I would have to keep for some time. In about a month, I got a call from Doris telling me to come at once, that George had just died of a heart attack in a motel. I was in Santa Monica at the time, so it was about three hours until I could get there. Doris told me that when his spirit left his body that the light bulb exploded and the table was split in half with a bright blue light. This did not surprise me. What did surprise me was when she confided in me that she felt like that she had been living, well, not with the same person ever since he came back from his walk that day, that someone else was there. She too had experienced another being in his body, and she told me that this being that left was only sent for a short period of time. She wanted me to record this as she felt that I would know what to do with this material later. I took care of all the funeral arrangements for Doris as she was in such a state that she could not think for herself with clarity. I don't remember much about this as I was still processing the fact that 
George had left that day that we had taken the walk and, and not the person that we were memorializing now at his service. It has now been 23 years since that eventful walk with George Van Tassel. I can truly say that if I had to mark a place in my life where I took a 180-degree turn, it'd be that walk in the sand dunes after reading the Wadi Scrolls. On July 1, 1991, Doris Van Tassel died. I received a phone call telling me that Doris had sold the pages of the manuscript for $10,000 a page. She had distributed them around the world to different people and had made it almost impossible to retrieve. This is the information I was told in 1991. I was devastated to hear this as every decision I made was readying myself for the responsibility of this manuscript. I felt betrayed. I felt alone. My life went pretty much on hold after that, and not until the crack in the boulder at Giant Rock did I feel the need to write this down on paper. But something about the way that George told me that the rock would crack one day seemed to be the code or signal for me to finally release some of this information. Last year, in 1999, I went to visit someone who had been healed at Giant Rock by the ETs. I hadn't seen or heard from her in over 20 years. She had recently published a book about the Van Tassel's work and had reprinted a lot of George's former writings. One night, just before we were to retire, she brought a manuscript into my room. There sat a copy of the Wadi Scrolls. I was so stunned that I couldn't open them. They stayed unopened by me the entire stay. I had kept my part of the bargain and been betrayed. Now they were back, and I just wasn't. I knew that if I picked up the manuscript that I could never put it down, so I just never did. Everyone was dead now. Harvey, Doris, Jewish couple, Leo. All except me. No, thank you. I got the message, and it is still the same message that I gave George when he asked me what he should do with the manuscript. The world is still not ready, nor would it be ready for some time to come. Now here is the rest of the story that emerged in 2005. On my way to San Diego to catch a cruise ship for the Spiritual Cinema Circle, I stopped by to see this woman again as I was now reconsidering looking at the scrolls again. Maybe I'd been too hasty with my decision. Perhaps now I could maintain a more balanced degree of sanity concerning what I had already experienced through the years concerning the Wadi Scrolls. I was aware now that other scrolls are coming forth, and I noticed that no one was ever killed for it, so maybe I was safe after all. The Da Vinci Code and other books had paved the road for this kind of spiritual revaluation, and I knew that I had some galactic codes that would take spiritual seekers on a galactic adventure that would shed some light on their already curious minds about the truth concerning Christianity. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to take this information, but at least I was willing to pick up the scrolls again and make this determination. 
Get yourself ready to fall off your tricycle for this next revelation. When I mentioned to my friend that I was ready to read the Wadi Scrolls, she looked puzzled and said, What Wadi Scrolls? I refreshed her memory of my visit some years back, and she did remember that I had been at her house, but she had no memory of any Wadi Scrolls being by my bedside. In fact, she remembered nothing about the Wadi Scrolls and asked me to tell her about them. <laughs> I was so stun gun that I couldn't speak, and since we hadn't had dinner yet, I encouraged us to go to a restaurant and continue our conversation there. I noticed that through dinner she was showing signs of dementia and that her memory was truly escaping her. But there was something about the way that she had been erased totally about the Wadi Scrolls that had me in a state of bewilderment. Had I missed the opportunity by simply refusing to pick up the scrolls again? Was I so terribly hurt and upset by past actions concerning the scrolls that I was paralyzed with regret to the point of complete denial? What had I done to myself and my commitment concerning the scrolls? I had missed the window. And now no one but me even had the memory of the history of how George had acquired the scrolls, Doris had sold them, I had turned my back on picking them up again, and now they were lost to me. Now as I'm getting ready to announce Part 1 of Crack Between the Worlds for the exclusive report on Starseed Radio Academy, I am confident that many starseed, walk-ins, lightworkers, indigos, and crystal beings will be further activated as this story is broadcast and goes viral through the Internet. I trust that those listening to this story will honor the fact that these are my galactic experiences and will pass this on to others that may honor the source as well as the information. With that, I now close. Until next time, we meet in Galactic Sacred Space for Part 2 of Crack Between the Worlds Information, as secrets from the vault are being released in timing with certain coded and planetary activations on the planet. The time of this recording is September 18, 2010. Read by Lavendar. Well, every time I hear that, I hear something I didn't hear before. So um, that's it for our show tonight. I want to thank everyone for listening, especially Lavendar for holding the point and bringing this information to the world. And we will be back next week. So on behalf of all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, we thank you for listening. Have a great week. Have a great Easter. And remember to show grateful thankfulness for all that we have. Until then, good night. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 